Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Joel 2, 1 through 2, and then 12 through 17. Blow the trumpet, sound the alarm on Zion, God's sacred hill. Tremble, people of Judah, the day of the Lord is coming soon. It will be a dark and gloomy day, a black and cloudy day. The great army of locusts advances like darkness spreading over the mountains. There has never been anything like it, and there never will be again. But even now, says the Lord, Repent sincerely and return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Let your broken heart show your sorrow. Tearing your clothes is not enough. Come back to the Lord your God. He is kind and full of mercy. He is patient and keeps his promise. He is always ready to forgive and not punish. Perhaps the Lord your God will change his mind and bless you with abundant crops. Then you can offer him grain and wine. Blow the trumpet on Mount Zion. Give orders for a fast and call an assembly. Gather the people together. Prepare them for a sacred meeting. Bring the old people. Gather the children and the babies too. Even newly married couples must leave their homes and come. The priests serving the Lord between the altar and the entrance of the temple must weep and pray. Have pity on your people, Lord. Do not let other nations despise us and mock us by saying, Where is your God? Here's what we see in the rest of that chapter. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them, and I will no longer make you a reproach to the nations. But I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive them away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. And his stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beast of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down on you, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors will be full of wheat. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, the chewing locusts. My great army which I sent among you, and you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And notice notice this, verse 27, Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people will never be put to shame. So think about that for just a minute. Think about the context of the book of Joel. Think about everything that they're having to endure. The book of Joel takes place during about the same time of Haggai and Ezra and Nehemiah when 
the children of Israel are coming back into their homeland. And we remember, we remember Sunday how the people were coming back and they were lackadaisical, to say the least. They were putting off the work that they were supposed to do. They were putting off the work that they were supposed to do because they had no faith in the promises of God. Because they thought to themselves, well, you know, this has happened before. We build up the land, we build the walls, we build the temple, we plant crops, then nothing happens, and then eventually we get raided again, and we have to go through the same process. And it comes to nothing. But God says something. He makes a promise. He makes a promise to the people. And he says, if you remember from Sunday, he says that if you will do this, I will be with you. I will pour my spirit out upon you. And then finally they got to work. But in the meantime, until they got to work, what happened was they experienced what we called a biblical curse. And you'll remember that we looked at what a biblical curse is from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Crops fail, rain stops, animals die. That's what's happening in Joel. Now, we don't live in a primarily agrarian society. Now, you who are farmers do, but, but what does this mean for the rest of us? Mostly, I think it means that we have a low return on our investments. And I'm not really talking about financial investments either. For example, why is it that you can work for years and with little to nothing to show for it? You know, why is it that why is it that some people do whatever they can? They go to church for years. They their their name is on the church roll for years, and yet their kids grow up to hate God and hate the church, no matter how much they try to instill Christian values in them. What's happening? They're getting a little return on their investment. Why is it that there's very little flourishing and thriving in the way that God intends for you to flourish and thrive? Now you might think, well, you know, well, we're doing everything we can. Well, if we know something of Israel's history, then we can probably guess why they're experiencing all of these failures. Verse 13, I think, gives us a clue. Notice that Joel says in Joel 2.13, rend your heart and not your garment. It was, a, it was a cultural sign of mourning to tear your garment and cover your face with ash, such as we're about to do in a moment. But what God says through Joel is clear. God doesn't want the, the, God doesn't want the physical acts that are associated with repentance. He wants real, heartfelt repentance. It's possible to put on a show for everyone and never be inwardly changed. But God wants a change of heart. As a matter of fact, God says as much in, in the book of Amos, in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 25. This is what God says, and it's very blunt to the, to the children of Israel. He says, I hate all of your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. He says, I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. And he says, away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of, of righteous living. So what does God want for his people? Look again at verses 15 through 17 in Joel 2. Notice what he says. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babies. 
Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? So notice the two main things that God wants. First of all, he wants the people to come together for a solemn assembly. Now you might think, well, why does God want that? Didn't you just read where God condemned their solemn assemblies in Amos chapter 5? That's true. But here's the thing. God wants a solemn assembly because the problem is not with the solemn assembly itself. The problem is with the people. The problem is that the people gather for solemn assemblies and there's no real repentance. They just go through the motions. People do this all the time with church services every Sunday. They go, through, they go to church on Sunday and then live like hell Monday through Saturday. And I'm sure we've all known people who do that. And so what's the problem? The problem isn't with the church service. The problem isn't with the liturgy. The problem isn't with the music or, or with the preaching. The problem is with the people. It's the, it's the human heart that's the problem. So in Joel 2, God wants a solemn assembly, and he wants the hearts of the people to actually be broken before him. Notice the second thing. He wants the priests to weep. He wants the priests to weep. Now, who were the priests in that culture? They were the leaders of the people. They were the representatives that stood between God and the people. God wants the priests to weep on behalf of the people. Well, who are the priests now? It's pastors and elders. Jesus is our high priest, but, our, but who are the priests that serve under the high priest? It's the pastors and the elders. God wants the pastors and elders of the body of Christ to show that they care about the condition of, of the universal church with crying and repentance. So when was the last time we wept for the condition of the church? When was the last time we cried out to God for revival and renewal? When was the last time we asked God to save somebody that we knew? When was the last time that we asked God to grow the church? So as we consider this, think about, think about the results of repentance. Look what God promises as we look at verses 18 and 19. He says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer. So the Lord will answer prayers. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied by them, and I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Now this wasn't in my notes, but I think it's interesting that verse 19, God promises grain, wine, and oil. And when you think about what we have tonight on Ash Wednesday, we have grain, wine, and the bread and the wine, and we have oil in the ashes. God promises these things, and he says you will be satisfied with them. Grain, wine, and oil were what their economy thrived off of. God tells the people that if they will repent, he will be faithful to establish their lives in the land that they were promised. And this is so important because I think we're held back by the idea of what if I pray and nothing happens? What if I repent and nothing happens? What if I invite people to church and nothing happens? What if I invite people to church and they don't come? Well, what if we go to all this effort and nothing happens? And we come up with all kinds of excuses why we don't have any kind of programs, why we don't have any kind of outreach, why, why we don't need to change anything. Meanwhile, God says, if you repent, I will restore. 
if you repent, I will restore. Notice that, number one, he will replenish the resources. Number two, he will remove the threats. Look at verse 20. I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive away, drive them away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. See, this is one of those places where God removes any and every possible excuse that we could come up with. Joel takes place around the time of Ezra and Haggai, so the people are coming back to Jerusalem, and their job is to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and rebuild the culture. And as we saw in Haggai last Sunday, they're coming up with all kinds of excuses as to why the time is not yet to rebuild the temple. One of the things that Israel might have said was, well, what if we rebuild this temple and these walls and these pagan armies just come in and destroy everything again? And God says in verse 20, I'm going to remove far from you the northern army. God is saying that no matter what kind of threat tries to rear its ugly head, he will destroy it before it even has a chance to overcome us. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he say that? Because God is good. It's not that complicated. God makes those kinds of promises because he's good on those promises and because he's because he's good in general. I don't think we understand the the I don't think we understand how real the goodness of God's character is, because if we did, then we would understand that God makes good on his promises. God means every word when he says, if you will repent, I will restore. Now look at verse 25. Notice, we, we see how he promises to replenish resources. We, we see how he promises to remove threats. Now, Look at verses 25 through 27. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Notice that idea gets repeated twice. And I think that's interesting, because when you, if you were to go back and study Hebrew and, and read Hebrew, you would notice that there's no such thing as a punctuation mark. There's no such thing as boldened letters. There's no such thing as quotation marks. There's no way... To, when you're writing in Hebrew, there's no way to emphasize a word or phrase to, to visually emphasize it. And so if you want to emphasize something, you say it twice or you say it three times. Such, you know, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord sitting, sitting on his throne high and lifted up, he hears the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. It's because they're emphasizing the holiness of God. And so whenever you see a phrase like, my people will never be put to shame, and it's repeated over and over again, it's because God is emphasizing the point. I'm not going to leave you out on a limb by yourself. And so the third promise is that God will restore the years. And we like that part at the beginning. I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. But where did the locusts come from in the first place? Well, they came from God. God sent the locusts, but why did he send the locusts? He sent the locusts to remind Israel that the same curses that came upon Egypt can come upon them too. 
if they forget God and they live in complacency and idolatry and think that this is, you know, and don't think this is a simply an Old Testament concept either. We can still live under a curse now if we forget God, but God still makes the same promise to us. If you will repent, I will restore. If you will repent, I will restore. Listen, you may think it's too late. You may think it's all gone and everything's all wasted, but God says, I'm not just going to give you the resources. I'm not just going to remove your threats. I'm, I'm going to give you back time itself. I'm going to give you back whole years that you thought were gone. And you get tired of the status quo when you get tired of watching the numbers drop on the attendance board, when you get tired of watching your loved ones live in sin. You can go to God. And you can weep like these priests in Joel chapter 2. And you know what God will do? He will restore the years. Here's, here's the fact of the matter as we look at Joel 2. Our wilderness doesn't have to be wasted. Our wilderness doesn't have to be wasted. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches the first sermon of the church, the, the very first sermon of the church, you know, you think, you think new preachers are nervous whenever they preach their first sermon. How do you think Peter felt? No one had ever preached a sermon before. He's preaching the first sermon. And what passage does he use? Joel chapter 2. Joel 2. He, Peter, preach, Peter preaches the first sermon and he quotes this passage, Joel 2, as a sign that the opportunity for repentance was real and it was present. And then finally, when the Jews who were there when they were convicted, Acts 2 says they were cut to the heart, they asked Peter, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Well, where does here's a good question. When you think about that text, where does Peter get that last part in verse 39 about how this is for your this promise is for your children and as many as the Lord our God will call? Where does he get that? Well, he gets it from Joel 2. Look at the last few verses in Joel chapter 2. <coughs> verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And, I, and also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, notice this last line, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. It's very vague, but it's there. And here's the encouraging part. You'll read Joel 2 and you think, well, this was just for them and their time. But then Peter repeats it. Peter repeats it to those who were convicted hundreds of years later on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because it wasn't just for people in Joel's day, it was for Peter in, Pe in it was for people in Peter's day. 
And the amazing part about all of it is it's not just for people in Joel's day, and it's not just for people in Peter's day. It's for us today. If you will repent, I will restore. This promise is still for you. It's still for me. It's still for this church if we will believe it and cling to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we are your people. We ask, Father, that as we gather on this Ash Wednesday evening, you would... You would bless our time together. Let these words that we have said and these songs that we have sang and will sing, let them be as, as a sweet offering to you, O oh God. We ask that you would use everything tonight to remind us of our mortality and remind us that, that if we repent, you will restore. We ask it all in your name. Amen. for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.